In Session with Dr. Farid Hulaku. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Farid Hulaqui. I'm your host, Dr. Farid Hulaqui, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any psychological or emotional issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number, 310-441-0555. All right, before I get started with the book of the week from this past week, I'll mention the book for this week, which I'll talk about on next Monday's show. It is The Forgetting Machine by Rodrigo Quian Quiroga. I'm sure I said that wrong. The Forgetting Machine, Memory, Perception, and the Jennifer Aniston Neuron. I'm curious to read what that is, the Jennifer Aniston Neuron, but I think it's something about how sometimes specific neurons might be linked to specific memory or piece of information, but looking forward to reading this book, The Forgetting Machine, and sharing it with you uh, next Monday. But the book of the week from this past week, which I'll talk about tonight, is The Disordered Mind by Eric R. Kandel. The Disordered Mind, What Unusual Brains Tell Us About Ourselves. And this was a really interesting book from a wonderful scientist. Dr. Kandel was the winner of the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for work he's done on learning and memory in 2000. And in this book, he goes through different brain disorders, things like autism, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, and sees how the brains of these individuals can be different than people who don't suffer from these illnesses. But also we get to see that when we see what's not quite working right and can create a mental illness, it teaches us about how the brain does work typically, which is very interesting. And for me, it's also, I'm very happy about neuroscience and the way it's advanced because of a few reasons. One is that it helps us to understand that mental illnesses are real things. That when someone has schizophrenia, something is going on in their brain. And before it was hard for them to figure these things out, and after people would die with mental illnesses, they would oftentimes think, because they can't see something in the brain, they weren't able to detect it at that time, in a way it almost meant these people were morally or spiritually, or something was wrong with them. That there was these physical ailments and illnesses, but then these types of mental illnesses were something about them. And to be honest, even though science and we have advanced so much, we still see that many people view mental illness in this way. So they might view depression as a weakness. Even being sad can be seen as a weakness. So many people carry that stigma of just even being sad means you're weak, and so they don't want to feel their sadness. And even though they try not to feel it, it's still there affecting them. And then when they do inevitably feel sad, they can beat themselves up for being sad, for something that's natural and normal and okay. 
uh, even depression itself is something very real, but people will think of them as somehow personally being weak, not realizing there's something more going on. Uh, or schizophrenia, we can stigmatize someone and saying, oh, they're crazy, or they're just whatever, a lunatic, or use other judgmental words to describe them. But when we do the research that the nurse, neuroscientists are doing, we see there's something really going on in the brain. It's not that these people want to be sick or are doing something to be sick. Something is definitely going on for them, and that's why they experience what they are experiencing. So something real is happening when someone is depressed. And so when people say it's all in your head about depression, what they tend to mean is, so just get over it. What I like to say is, yes, it is all in your head. Something real is going on with your brain. There are issues related to the neurotransmitters. Different parts of your brain aren't communicating. He talks about the disconnect between our thoughts and our feelings that can occur that we observe when they do brain studies with people with depression. Things are actually happening. It's all in your head. It's something real. Saying it's all in your head about depression is just like saying your broken leg is all in your leg. Yes, you have a broken bone in your leg. That's some problem. That's why you're having the pain or the issue you're dealing with. So the brain research teaches us and shows us that people who have mental illness, it's a very real thing that we can measure, that we can see. Another thing I find fascinating is that what we see is that sometimes what differentiates someone who we might consider healthy or typically developing and someone who is um, mentally ill, we see very small differences. And I came across this thought when I was doing an internship way back in graduate school now at a psychiatric hospital. And I'd be working with patients who had schizophrenia or other severe mental illnesses who sometimes would be very disconnected from reality. And I would talk to them and see they were just saying things that maybe didn't make sense or they thought they were an alien or I was an alien or other types of delusions or they had hallucinations. And I would realize after talking to them for some time and spending some months there that it's, it's kind of amazing that what differentiates my ability to stay connected to reality as we think of it and their inability to do so might be microscopic differences in neurotransmitters or brain chemicals or small degrees of changes in the sizes of different parts of the brain. It's something that maybe it's hard to even see with the naked eye or impossible to see with the naked eye that differentiates me and that person. And that, to me, reminds us of the fragility we have of being a healthy individual, that death or illness is something that's very close to all of us, not to uh, make us afraid or paranoid, but just that's the reality in a way. The blessing we have of being alive and healthy, whatever health you have, is that we're very close to not being healthy. Very easily that could be taken away. And so we see when it comes to our mental capacity and ability to just even be grounded in what's going on around us, we're a lot closer to being uh, even psychotic than you might realize. And so that also takes away the stigma of making it us and them, the mentally ill and the mentally healthy, or me versus the crazy people. If you think of it that way, you see it's really not the case. We're much closer than we'd like to think. And on top of that, all of us have a little bit of, if you want to call it crazy within us. Really, everyone you talk to, if you break down all the things they think and believe, you'll see some delusional type thinking or something close to a delusion in something that they think. 
So to think we're so different from someone that has a mental illness is also not true. Um, and also the fact that we're all a lot closer to it than you might think. Many people never get depressed until sometime later in their life they might have a severe depression. It's not something that if you haven't experienced it, it doesn't mean you won't experience it. So to me, the issue of looking at the brain and trying to understand mental illness has lots of benefits. And of course, very importantly, once we understand what's not quite working in the brain of someone who has a severe mental illness, we can improve the treatments that we have. So if we see that serotonin might be related to depression, reduction in serotonin, we might be able to create drugs as they have to improve or increase the serotonin that remains in the brain or in the synapses. And that could lead to improvements in mood, which is great. And of course, the more they understand, the more they can do. So this book looked at various psychiatric disorders and trying to understand what's happening in the brain of these individuals. And it touched on a few other topics, which I will talk about as well. Um, to begin with, one thing that's interesting or important to keep in mind is we always want to look at the genetic component of any mental illness. And I was actually surprised I didn't realize the incidence was so high for autism, but in identical twins, if one twin, an identical twin has autism, there's a 90% chance that the identical twin will have autism. So it has a very heavy genetic contribution, but even still it's not 100%. So it tells us environment plays some role. Um, and in other disorders, we see a less of a genetic loading. For bipolar disorder, it's 70%. For schizophrenia, it's 50%. And for depression, it's 40%. But still, we see that there is a genetic component. And interestingly, they have found that some genes account for multiple me mental illnesses. So some of the same genes can contribute to autism, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia, which is interesting. And he talks a lot about uh, genetics in this book and different ways that they're learning about how genetics can be playing a part in the development of serious mental illnesses. And even related to that, I found it quite fascinating that they did some research on what they called exceptionally creative people. And what they found was that exceptionally creative people were more likely than non-creative people to have one or more first-degree relatives with schizophrenia. And so to me, this is telling us that, and that's actually what they talked about in the book, this idea that people who are very creative, and when we think of what creativity is, it's basically coming up with a new way or new perspective on something. Or if you're an artist, a new format or form of uh, producing art, and you have to think a little different to do so. So what these exceptionally creative people do is that they have basically this ability to integrate things and see things differently, but not so differently to be psychotic, to be out of touch with reality, but enough where they can see the world in a different way that is forward thinking or leads to progress. So often you maybe have heard that there's a blurry line between a genius and someone who is insane or mad, and it really is true. And these types of studies show us that. And even we know that there is a higher uh, chance that an artist has bipolar disorder or more artists have bipolar disorder than other people. And that makes sense too. There is something in the mania or in the switching, having those lows and having those highs where they're very creative or feel very good that enables them to be even better artists, which is quite interesting. 
So in the book, you get this idea of talking about the disordered mind, which is the title, people who have these disorders, but you see again that sometimes it's more blurry than you might think, this distinction between what is illness and what is not. Or even someone with an illness might also have some benefits too. And if you recall, when I talked about the book, A First Rate Madness, it was talking about how several uh, or many leaders who were able to be good leaders during crisis situations were actually very good at what they did or were good leaders because of mental illnesses that they had. So we see that if we just think of it as an illness, it maybe isn't the whole picture. Sometimes it's good to think of it as different, which was actually a title of another book was looking at that, that people with mental illnesses might just be different, not just ill. And even related to, I was talking about art before and mental illness, there was actually at some time um, people who were producing or publishing the art of people who had psychosis, who had schizophrenia, and in that state were producing art that was quite intense. And even this had a big effect on the surrealists who saw this art and in a way thought what these people were able to do is really tap into their unconscious and express what was there. And so they actually tried to do things to reduce the impact of their consciousness or to kind of reduce those inhibitions to let the creativity out, to tap into their unconscious even more. Um, this includes uh, incredible artists like Dali, Salvador Dali, who I saw one of his paintings recently in a museum, and it was really beautiful and quite intense. Um, and he was part of this movement where some of what they were doing was try to actually recreate this feeling that people or this experience that people with something as significant as schizophrenia are experiencing um, because they felt that these people were able to get more in touch with their unconscious, which is what they thought an artist really should be trying to do. Uh, interestingly, looking at the role of genes and environment, something I'd not heard of that he talked about in this book is de novo mutations, which can lead to mental illnesses like autism, schizophrenia, and bipolar disorder. But these are mutations that arise spontaneously in the sperm of adult men, which increase with paternal age. So very often people will talk about the age of the mother and think that that uh, is something to be concerned about. And of course it is and it can be in that there is a window of uh, fertility there. And sometimes the thought is, well, a man can have a child at any time. But there is research showing that because of these de novo mutations that happen in the sperm themselves, it can have an impact on the children. And specifically, it has been linked to autism, schizophrenia, and bipolar disorder, uh, increasing the chances of those disorders. And so he mentions in the book how lots of people are wondering something like autism. Why is there such an increase in autism? Of course, one of the reasons is we're better at recognizing it and diagnosing it, but also he's saying because of later paternal age, which we have been observing, this could be contributing to that as well. Uh, another topic he covers in the book is gender identity, and I thought that was really a fascinating part of the book, um, that he had a whole chapter devoted to that, something that we're seeing a lot in uh, the media news as we're learning more, or it's becoming more common to discuss people who are transgender. And I thought it was a really good chapter in the book on that, but he talked about how gender identity begins to be apparent in early childhood and is not based on anatomical sex. So 
Again, just because you are born in a male body, that's your sex, it doesn't mean you will identify as male. And there are different parts of the brain and different things that happen that can account for this. And so this is why someone could literally feel like they were born in the wrong body. They feel like they are female, feel like, let's say, a girl if they're younger or woman, but they were born into a male body. And he shares the story of one individual who talks about how difficult it was in the transition they went through and how they felt liberated. But it's really great that they're doing this research to look at the brain and how it plays a part in these types of issues, but that hopefully people can recognize again, as I was saying before, how studying the brain can help us understand and legitimize sometimes the suffering of certain individuals, that people have a gender identity uh, issue or feel that they were born in the wrong body, there is something there. It's not something they are just making up to get attention, as some people might think, or they're confused. I think the only thing that really makes people more confused when it comes to their sexuality or their gender identity is the pressure that we put on people to be a certain way. If we didn't have such a strong stigma and if people didn't feel like they would be judged or disowned or in religious circles, if they feel like they're going to be excommunicated or if they're going to hell or God won't love them for being a certain way, that's what I think leads to the confusion. But if we gave people to space and accepted them, that some people feel like they were born in the wrong body. Some people are attracted to the same sex. Some are attracted to the opposite. Some might be attracted to both. But if people had the comfort and the space to actually explore that, I think people would be far less confused. Uh, but we're seeing that there are uh, pieces, uh, places in the brain or the way the brain works where gender identity, which becomes apparent, as I mentioned, early in childhood, and that's why you'll hear a lot of people from a young age, they'll say, I was a boy, but I didn't want to play with the girl toys and play with the girls. I always wanted to play with the boys. Um, it's somewhere in the brain where people are having this understanding. And the more we can understand it, the more we can be understanding towards them, be more accepting towards them. Uh, so the book was really fascinating. I didn't get into a lot of the science on a deeper level. He goes into different parts of the brain specifically, which can be interesting. But even if you don't care too much about learning the specifics of the brain, the book still has a lot of information about understanding ourselves better, understanding mental illness better, and understanding how our brain works and sometimes does not quite work. So that book, again, was The Disordered Mind by Eric R. Candell, and the book of the week again for this week, The Forgetting Machine by Rodrigo Quian Quiroga. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Uh, let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Dr. Farid? Yes, hi. Thanks for calling. Sure. Um, I'm getting an echo back, but uh, you can hear me okay? We can hear you fine. Yeah, hopefully if okay. it doesn't disturb you. Yeah, we're hearing you great. No, no problem. Uh, I have a couple of questions. Okay. Uh, number one, uh, the basic difference between a personality of a person and a character of a person. What's the difference? Hmm. You know, sometimes these things, uh, you can define them lots of ways, and I don't know if you're going to get agreement from everyone about these things. But for me, personality is more about, like, traits of the person, um, things like 
if they're shy or if they're um, in a more positive, extroverted, introverted, open to things. So when they do personality tests, sometimes it measures those types of issues. To me, character is more about related to action, things like integrity, kindness, honesty, or someone who is more manipulative. To me, those can be more part of character. But in some ways, it's kind of like we're, we're slicing up the pie in different ways. It depends on how you want to do it. But to me, it, it you know they can be very interrelated because sometimes I've heard people talk about personalities being something that you're born with. But I think people can make changes. So maybe you're comfortable being more of an introvert, but you can make efforts to then be more extroverted too, and people can change. So to me, th that part of it, I think it's, it is a little bit malleable. Uh, it does seem to get pretty set when we talk about personality. For example, personality disorders at age of 18, you can diagnose them. Before that, you can't. But to me, character is more about how someone uh, lives their life as far as the traits they display in that way. Can, can you kind of say that your personality is mainly shaped by influence, being influenced by others, but your character is mainly coming from the inside of you kind of a thing? Is that a... Yeah, I would say it, yes, it, but, it, your, it, but your personality can get shaped a lot by others. I mean, I think they both can be. Um, eventually, character, yes. I think character is something deeper to me. And even, okay. you know, in um, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey talks about the personality ethic versus the character ethic and how uh, many older self-help books was focused more on character, building okay. integrity, honesty, these strong characteristics of how you live your life. And now he, he was arguing that more self-help books are looking at personality, how to look good, how to uh, be, you know, win friends and influence people, how to make people like you, how to look like a leader. It's more surface. So to me, Character is a little bit deeper also for my, that's how I look at it when I think of character. It's more things that are at a deeper level of how you live your life, who you are, and personality is more, a little more surface than okay, that. Okay. So that'd be another uh, distinction that I would see. Second question is about, I think, what you've been talking about, about the, <clears throat> the brain and everything, mm -hmm. uh, neuroscience. Uh, it's, it's, I know it's a very broad and difficult subject to talk about. Uh, mind mind versus consciousness. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I I know mind means the functionality of the brain, mm -hmm. and we don't really really know what consciousness is. Uh, I mean, we do, but we don't. I think. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. I mean, even actually, you know, you know, when I talk about these books, of course, in fifteen minutes, I can't cover almost no, most of the book. And actually, there's a whole chapter in the book, and I would recommend it if you're interested. He talks about consciousness and trying to understand it. And as you said, it's very hard for us to understand consciousness or even how consciousness comes about. That's something they're trying to figure out. And it's hard for us to understand or even what that means. At some level, when we talk about consciousness, we're talking about awareness at some level. Because when I tell you you're unconscious of something, what we're saying is you're not aware of it, but it's somewhere in your brain. And we know that your brain is processing so much unconsciously and it has to and it's adaptive last week i talked about the book before you know it and talked about this idea that sometimes we think of the unconscious in this dark negative way possibly from the legacy of freud introducing the idea of the unconscious and it's all about unresolved sexual desires and aggression and all these negative things but we know that unconscious is something that we need constantly our brain is 
is holding on to so much, but only some of it is in our awareness. So there is some kind of link between consciousness and in, in just understanding it. It's something we're feeling that we're aware of. But defining consciousness and trying to understand how our neurons working together create this experience of consciousness, it's hard to really understand. And even maybe we can talk about degrees of consciousness. Are other animals conscious but in a different way than human beings have consciousness? Some people would say human beings are the only conscious creatures and animals are just functioning unconsciously completely. These things are, to me, things that are still very much up for debate. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah, okay. Uh, last one, uh, you're you talking about, uh, and that's, uh, this is the third one is the, the difficult one for me to explain, I guess. It's, you're talking about, let, let's say somebody has uh, uh, dementia or he has any kind of disease. Mm-hmm. It basically goes, everything goes back to the brain and the functionality of the brain and so on and so forth. Uh, the, the issue that I have is people that they, they are, let's say, the worst case in, in one sense, uh, a child molester. Mm-hmm. A, a child molester's brain could, could work differently than uh, what I would call a normal person's mm-hmm. brain. Uh, let, let's say if we do find the, the gene or whatever portion of the brain that uh, the scientists can alter and let's call it cure, curing that disease. If somebody is a child molester, and the reason we know why he is that way, and if we go cure that, then he's not a child molester anymore. Mm-hmm. And if, if, he has, if he has molested a child prior to his cure, is it responsible for it or is it not responsible for it? Well, responsible is an interesting word to use. And these questions, actually, he brought it up not about child molesters in this book, but the idea of people who are uh, who have antisocial personality disorder or psychopaths who we see yeah. in their brain different ways of functioning that makes them not necessarily feel remorse or not feeling any sure. concern for other people. And then so we can ask ourselves, how responsible is that person for committing a violent or aggressive act if their brain is functioning so differently. And really, again, that's something that is not so clear. And people can argue different things. How much free will does that person have? How, as you said, that word responsible are they? And I'm I'm, I'm, the legality... I thought that word very carefully. Yes. Because the the reason I'm saying that, there, there is the science part of it, and there is the legal part of it. Yeah. The legal part of it. Well, I mean, it's, 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 uh, it, you can argue that you know, in uh, many different levels, uh, different aspects of it. Um, yeah. Well, one I, I, for I, me. I just wanted to see what you. No, think. sure. And I think you know <laughs> what's also interesting for me or important is um, when you talk about responsible. I think a big part of that question also ties into well, what's the punishment, or should that person be punished? when we're looking at responsible. And I think this comes back to the bigger idea of as a society, and I live in the United States, which has one of the highest, I think the highest of all industrialized uh, populations or countries as far as how much of our population is in prison or behind bars. And I think, yeah, yeah, and I I very much disagree with that way of dealing with society. Do people need to be removed from society when they're creating uh, damage and hurting people? Should we 
um, have consequences, yes. But I think the goal should be towards uh, helping these people and helping society. When we put people in jail and just punish them and don't help them get better and help them then become contributing members of society, they lose and we lose, in my opinion. And unfortunately, here in the United States, we have the prison industrial complex. So there's a lot of people that make a lot of money from prisons. And so they want people to be there. Yeah. So there's a business side. So to me, you know, answering your question, it's that we have to think of what's the purpose of what we are doing. And so someone can be responsible for what they did, but it doesn't mean necessarily they have to give up their whole life. Depends on what they did. And so these are very intricate questions because, yes, if someone has molested a child, saying there should be no consequence to me is definitely unfair and does not make sense. Uh, but another aspect of this, I, I was going to, I think I talked about this a couple years ago because I, I was hearing and reading some articles on this idea of if there are people who are child, who have this attraction towards children and something clearly is not going right with them and their brain and it's something is off, but sometimes even before they have offended because of such a strong stigma, which we have against individuals who molest children and obviously understandably so but because there's so much stigma that to even acknowledge that this is something you have this attraction but you haven't touched anyone haven't hurt anyone these people have a hard time asking for help which might actually allow them to get help and not act on these feelings or this desire and help them not ever hurt anyone but because they are so stigmatized they might not ask for help and then might act on those urges. So these things have big consequences when we make it that people who are clearly not doing okay, who have a, an illness, but because they can't get help for that illness, they actually end up hurting people and hurting themselves and creating a bad situation. As bizarre as it might seem, we might have to make it more okay for people to come forward when they have these types of issues. And if the first thing we do is punish them, even before they've committed an act... Uh, we're not doing anyone a service, really. And so that's an interesting one for me, something that I think it's controversial to talk about because I think child molesters or even people being attracted to children, so I should say it that way because they maybe haven't acted yet, but that's one of those things that it's almost universally just hated and despised. And again, I can understand that because doing that to a child to me is one of the worst crimes that a human being can do. So I'm not in any way condoning or undermining that. My goal actually in saying this is that I want to reduce the number of people that do become victims. And so that if we're able to allow these people to seek help from a young age, even we allow a teenager to express this, or when they get into young adulthood, they can feel some level of comfort that if I say this, I'm not going to automatically be ostracized as a monster and a bad person before I've even committed an act. I think it actually will reduce the number of children who have this happen to them. So my goal is not benefiting just them. Oh, I feel bad for them. I want us to be compassionate towards people who have this attraction. There is some of that, to be honest, but more of it, way more of it, is to reduce the number of children who have this happen to them. And if we try to pretend like these people can't get help, and if we tell them they shouldn't come forward before they've even done anything, then of course, we're not actually going to help the problem. So I think we do need to have a paradigm shift when it comes to this issue, which is going to be a big undertaking. I understand it's not going to be easy, but I do think it's important to consider that when we come from a punishment first mentality, we hurt the people who are t making those actions, but also we can hurt society in different ways as well.
I, what, what you're what you're saying is it's a bigger bigger picture of what I'm talking yes. about. Yes, and you're talking about preventing it from happening yeah. in the first place. And and I understand your point of view, but my my point was uh, when I say responsible for it, uh, I don't know how to explain it. I have to think about to, to make sure you don't get the wrong idea of what I'm trying to say. If, mm-hmm. if uh, I'm not talking about punishment, that's not what my point was. When I use the word responsible, I don't. We don't want to uh, make the situation that people say, "I did this just because I have this disease." Right. I did that because part of my brain is not. It's not me. It's, it's my yeah. brain. Well, this you, is you, yeah. You this is right. No, absolutely. This is where you know this idea of kind of determinism and free will comes into play, that's and right. I think. Again, sometimes it could be more blurry. It's not always so black and white. But I think we have to hold people accountable. And, uh, you know, this is a big part of the law, how people use these types of uh, evidence. And sometimes it does help. And maybe sometimes it should. Should it make a difference if it's harder for someone to control their anger compared to someone else and they both did the same action? That's, I think, an argument that can be worth being had, or do we just hold everyone to the same standard? It's very complicated. I think it's it's good that you're bringing this up, and if you know, I don't have a clear answer for you because I think there isn't no, one. But I think it's worth looking at, and the more we understand these issues and these disorders, um, the better we'll be able to get understanding of how much really is uh, the differences in the brain making an effect, and how much is their free will. And he talked about that in this book too. This idea of free will when we're looking at the brain and we recognize these types of differences how much do we hold the person accountable and say it's sure. their I illness accountability, I, yeah. should, I should have used that word instead of uh, you know responsible yeah, yeah I, I, that, that was that was the better word for me to use it's uh, my it's yeah it, it, it's great i mean it's like everything else uh, you you can start with the best intentions which is uh, you you look at gmos right now for example the, I mean, I don't want to take too much of your time. I don't know if you have other colors or not. Well, we but do. The, we just about at a commercial break, so I, I want okay. to give you a chance to finish your thought. Okay. The, just the idea is a GMO idea, for example, or gene therapy, or changing genes, right? A lot of people will go against it and say, you know what? I don't want anybody to change who I am because that's what I am. Mm-hmm. Who, who are you to come and tell? I'm, I don't, I'm not saying you're yeah, yeah. but who, who is science or scientists to come and tell me, you know what? I'm going to change the genes, and your eyes going to be blue instead of brown or whatever, right? Or how far are they going to go with that, right? That's one aspect of it, which that's the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. One aspect of it is it's for good things, or let's say if I, I would be against it, let's say, because I don't want you to change. But on the other hand, when it comes to personal level, if I have a kid that has a, a disease that it could be cured by changing one gene from one to the next, and he's cured. I'll be all for it. But the other people would not go for it because they don't have a sick child. Mm-hmm. They don't have a situation. So I'm just saying it makes it extremely difficult because on one hand is the personal level that you care about. On the other hand is at the society level that you are talking mm-hmm. about, that we can make a better society, yeah. better future, and so on and so forth. So right. it makes it extremely difficult sure. to, to make a point that it would make sense to most people 
and most people that they don't have that issue, they will go against it. They say, I don't, I don't want somebody to change me. I don't, right. I don't want well, I mean, come, and changing you know, someone is not something we can do quite yet. Depends on what yeah. we're talking about. But I think anytime we have advances in science, it tends to bring up new moral dilemmas right. that we have to figure out. So as we understand the brain better, it's going to introduce these types of new moral dilemmas. I do have to get to the commercial break, but thanks for your call. What, what was the name of the book? The book from this week was The, the Disordered Mind by okay. Eric Kandel, with a K, K-A-N-D-E-L. Very good. I'll check it out. Right. Thanks for calling. Have a good night. Good night. You All right. Probably. Okay, going into our last commercial break, you're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Um, as I've mentioned before on Instagram, I'll sometimes ask people for topics to talk about on the show. And I didn't do it tonight, but last week I got a whole bunch and I didn't get to talk about most of them. But one of them that someone asked that I thought would be good to talk about tonight is bullying at the workplace. And usually when people think of bullying, we think of kids, elementary school, middle school, high school, and we think that adults we don't bully anymore. But that's definitely not true. Uh, actually, in social media, you'll see a lot of it happening. But really, when we think of bullying, we're usually thinking of something that's repeated. So it has to be people you're interacting with. And we do see a lot of workplace bullying. And actually, um, according to a Forbes article, 75% of employees surveyed in this study had been affected by workplace bullying, whether as a target or a witness. 75%. So three out of four people have either been the target of workplace bullying or have seen it. So that's huge. That means it's happening almost at every uh, office that we have. Someone has either bullied or is getting bullied or it's been happening. So we know that it does happen a lot. And so that can be good for people to recognize if it is happening to you, you're definitely far from being the only one. It is very common, but we also might want to think about what can we do or what else do we know about workplace bullying? Um, one thing that's different also about workplace bullying compared to bullying in school is that it tends to be far less physical. It's more usually um, psychological or verbal. It's usually not physical. Uh, kids in school might push or do different things or uh, you know, they used to dunk kids in the trash cans or toilets, horrible things like that. You're less likely to see that with adults in the workplace. I'm sure it still does happen, but it's usually more psychological or verbal. Now, one thing that was interesting when I looked up some research on workplace bullying, usually when we think of someone who gets bullied, uh, we think of someone who is quote unquote weak, or when it comes to school, someone who maybe doesn't fit in or is a little bit different, but that's not actually what they see in workplace bullying. Actually, what they find is sometimes people who get the targets of bullying are sometimes the strongest individuals at the company because what ends up happening is usually the bullying happens because someone feels threatened by another employee. And so since they feel like they can't really compete with that person, they try to use other means of either manipulation, putting that person down, talking bad behind their back, trying to make them feel uncomfortable so that they can maybe move up or neutralize that threat. So I think that point is very important so that if you are or have been targeted by someone in some type of workplace bullying, and I know that word can sound very dramatic, but it could even be a few instances. But if someone 
is trying to make you feel bad about yourself, the work you're doing, or your educational background, that usually means they see you as a threat. So you shouldn't think, as always, we should try not to take people's behavior towards us personally. It tells us a lot more about them, that they don't feel good about themselves, that they feel threatened by you possibly, or they feel like you are better at what you're doing than what they are. And so because of that, they're trying to find a way to bring you down in some way. I thought that was a very interesting point, and it does make sense um, to see that. And so the bullies are very often people who are good at manipulating uh, and controlling and getting people, trying to get people on their side. And unfortunately, very often at the company, the bosses might think that the bully, they'll see that they're not liked very much, that people don't like them, but they feel like they can't do without them in the company. So they kind of just think, well, that's how he is or that's how she is, but they keep them in the company. But unfortunately, um, ignoring the bullying, as is the case when we ignore really any problem, just creates more problems because the bullying continues. Usually the targets tend to either leave or their work performance will at least get effective negatively, but it has a lot of negative effects in the companies. But unfortunately, uh, as you who listen to the show know, I think that people are almost always avoiding the uncomfortable conversations and facing the situations they need to face. Here's another way that we see people doing that. So a lot of companies, a lot of bosses will kind of just think, well, let's just let them figure it out or they're all adults or it's just people being different, you're going to have conflict, and they'll very often condone or overlook bullying when really it has huge detrimental effects to the company. But if you are being bullied in a workplace, uh, there's not going to be one right way to deal with it. But I did think it was important to talk about assertive communication, um, which is important to, to talk about. But also before that, the idea that usually engaging with the bully is not a game you're going to win. Maybe you can be as good as they are, but stooping to their level, usually you are just going to make yourself feel bad and maybe even look bad, and you're just going to escalate things. So if they push and you push back, well, they're going to push harder, then now you'll push harder, and these things can escalate and build to the point where you're going to be paying some negative consequences. So usually it's easier said than done sometimes. If we can ignore or not engage, you're going to be better off. I think it's very important to set boundaries so you can let them know what they're doing is not okay if they're verbally, let's say, abusing you. Um, but to then attack them back is not going to help. But you can definitely set the boundaries. And of course, these things can be very complicated because if it's your manager who's bullying you, well, that could be a problem. Maybe you can go to someone above them. If it's a coworker, maybe you who's at your level, you can talk to a manager. But it creates sometimes these difficult situations because of the power dynamics that might be uh, at play. But I did want to talk about assertive communication because I think it's something that most people struggle with. And I'll just have a few minutes, but I'll, I'll talk about it briefly. But we can look at the communicating patterns or style, communication pattern or styles in three different ways. There's passive, and that means, as it sounds, you don't say much. You let people walk all over you. You don't disagree. You don't interfere. You don't really state your wants or needs or ideas. You're passive. You just let things happen to you. Uh, on the other extreme is aggressive someone who will step on people's toes. They won't really care what other people think. It's my, my way or the highway. They can 
uh, use even threats or they might use soft threats like using a louder voice to get their point across, but they don't really care about others. So passive and aggressive are like two extremes. And as always, or almost always, we want to find somewhere in the middle, which is being assertive. And assertive communication can be very strong, but it means I'm not going to impose on your needs or wants or hurt you, but I'm also going to state my opinion. So it has a balance. I'm going to say what I think and feel, my ideas, my even disagreements with you in a very clear way, but a respectful way, but I'm also not going to hide what I think or feel. And that's almost always going to be the healthiest way to communicate and something we want to have in all of our relationships, not just the workplace, but even in your friendships, romantic relationships, family relationships, assertive communication is overall the healthiest. Now, will there be moments where you might be passive or aggressive and even passive aggressive? Probably. But we want to strive towards being more assertive in how we communicate. So assertive communication means if you and a coworker are planning something and you disagree with them, the passive way would be like, oh, I don't think her idea is good, but I don't know exactly how to bring it up. So forget it. That would be passive. Aggressive would be, you're crazy. What are you thinking? We can't do it that way. We have to do it this way, the way I think we should do it. But assertive would be something maybe like, okay, I see what you're saying with that and this and this, but here are some concerns I have about it. Or here's what I think. I just wanted to see what you think about that. So you're listening to them, you're respecting them, but then you're also sharing where you might even disagree with them, which might make it an uncomfortable conversation, but you're being true to yourself and true to the other person, which overall is going to lead to the best result. And it leads to more openness and more ability to actually work through issues than to try to prevent them from being there or pretend like they are not there. So something that happens when I work with even clients in becoming more assertive, especially if they're passive, is they say, oh, great, like I was more assertive this week, but I said something and this person didn't like it. And if we are assertive and if we're being genuine and honest and open, which is part of being assertive, well, yes, yeah, sometimes people aren't going to like what you say. And the reason why people choose to be passive is because they don't want anyone to not like them or they want to avoid conflict or they want to make sure they don't say something no one they don't say anything that someone doesn't like, but that's not real life. That's not real relationships. So we have to be willing to be more assertive. And so I might bring up this topic of assertiveness another time, but just wanted to mention and thank you for the person uh, from Instagram. I forgot what their name was now because I can't see it anymore, but they act, asked about workplace bullying because a lot of people are affected. And as always, remember that if you are the, the target, it has less to do with you. And if anything, some of the research is showing it might mean you're actually a very strong employee. Um, it's more about that other person. And really, the less you can engage with them, probably the better off you are. Because if you try to play their game, you'll just have to stoop to their level. And more than likely, the outcome won't be very good. So uh, thank you to that listener for that topic suggestion. And always thank you to everyone who sends those my way. Uh, we are reaching the end of tonight's show. Thank you to the caller and all the listeners out there. And thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulaqui. Have a wonderful night. Mm -hmm.